Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Whether you call it May Long, May Run, May 2-4, or Victoria Day, there's no denying that despite it not being officially summer yet, this weekend is the unofficial kickoff to the season, and are we ever ready for it? After this, we only have three more long weekends to go, so make sure you get out and enjoy every second of this summer. But first, grab a cold drink, please, and settle in for today's show. Here's what's coming up. Dr. Paula Gordon from Dense Breast Canada, who is on a mission to detect as many breast cancers as possible in their early stages, joins me to share why Canada needs to follow in the footsteps of the United States and have women screened for breast cancer starting at 40. It may seem contrary to open a brick-and-mortar store in a digital world, but Penny Light from Grit and Grace views her growing empire as a place for connection with a side of slow, thoughtful fashion. Penny joins me to share why she is pushing ahead with her stores and why you should check them out. And Brody is here with new entertainment, including a look at the Eight Mountains, which follows the friendship of two men over 40 years, with the Italian Alps serving as the breathtaking background, and Master Gardener, an interesting and provocative tale with Joel Edgerton and Sigourney Weaver, and the lighthearted What's Love Got to Do With It in theaters now. Allie Payne joins me to differentiate between boundaries and expectations when it comes to your teens and why it is so important to be clear with your boundaries and let the expectations go. There is great news for future and current PSWs and RPNs with the BEGIN program. Diane Martin, CEO of We RPN, joins me to share how this program provides eligible participants up to 10000 per year in tuition funding in an effort to support retention and combat the provincial nursing shortage. Finally, Amy Jones has a new novel called Pebble and Dove, a captivating story set in a once-famous, now-abandoned aquarium ship in Florida and centered around the complex relationships between three generations of women and their shared connection with a manatee named Pebble. If you want to know how that all comes together, you need to stick around for the interview. It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. Recently, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force proposed that all women at average risk of breast cancer start screening at age 40 to reduce the risk of dying from the disease. This is something my next guest has been tirelessly advocating for in Canada. Dr. Paula Gordon is a clinical professor in the Department of Radiology at the University of British Columbia and a passionate advocate for advancing breast health knowledge and screening options. Dr. Gordon's mission is to detect as many breast cancers as possible in their early stages, offering women more treatment options and reducing mortality rates. She joins me now to discuss screening at 40 and why it is so important. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Gordon. Thank you. So can you explain the significance of the recent draft recommendation from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force? 
the significance is that they have made a good first step in the right direction. Until now, their guidelines have said that women should wait until age 50 to be screened. And we know that women should be screened starting at 40. Their guidelines didn't go far enough because they said women should be screened every other year. And it's especially important in younger women, women in their 40s, women who haven't gone through menopause yet, to be screened more frequently, meaning every year, because cancers grow faster in younger women. In Canada, our task force currently recommends screening at 50, which is wrong for the same reasons it was wrong in the US. In Canada, about 17% of breast cancers occur to women in their 40s, and that's a significant number. And further, we know that breast cancer is becoming more frequent in younger women. So we have to screen those women to find their cancers early. Their cancers do grow faster, which is why 27% of the years of life lost to breast cancer occur to women who are diagnosed in their 40s. And we have recent data from uh, researchers at the University of Ottawa in conjunction with Statistics Canada showing that in provinces that do not screen until 50, women are more likely to be diagnosed with advanced cancers in their 40s and 50s. In fact, already four provinces in Canada allow women to screen at age 40, and we have to make that across the country. All women in Canada should have access to optimal screening. The other thing the U.S. task force didn't get right is that they did not feel that women with dense breasts need any special extra screening. And we know that women with dense breasts are more likely to have their cancers overlooked or missed on their mammograms because cancers can hide in normal dense breast tissue. When a woman has a screening mammogram, she should be told in the mammogram report that she receives whether she has dense breasts, and that includes both categories C and D. Some provinces are downplaying the significance of women with category C and making it sound like only category D have dense breasts, but that's not true. Not only are women with dense breasts at risk of their cancers being missed on their mammograms, we know that having normal dense tissue increases the risk of getting breast cancer. So women with dense breasts, category C and D, should have access to additional, not instead of, but additional screening, usually with ultrasound or for women with very high risk, like women with breast cancer gene mutations, the BRCA genes, they should have MRI in addition to mammography. Can you just remind people then, because you and I have discussed dense breasts before, so maybe just remind people what that, the definition of a dense breast is. Of course. So all women have in their breasts uh, both fat, normal fat, and glandular tissue, that, that normal breast tissue where the milk is made. And on a mammogram, fat is black, and normal, dense, normal breast tissue is white. We call white dense because it blocks the passage of x-rays, so it shows up white on a mammogram. Cancers and even other lumps, non-cancerous lumps like cysts and so on, are also white. So if a woman has a lot of normal white tissue, and 40% of women over the age of 40, it's about 43%, have dense breasts, we know that lumps, including cancers, can hide because white hides in white. We, in white. we say it's like trying to see a snowman in a, snowman, a snowstorm. You just can't see it. 
So ultrasounds then and MRIs, they don't see that? They can see cancers even though they're in dense breast tissue. Okay, excellent. So then if women are listening to this and they're thinking, well, I'm 40, but my doctor's not going to give me a requisition, what what do they do? How can they, uh, you know, start pursuing regular uh, screening for breast cancer? Well, they have to advocate for themselves with their doctor. If I was that woman going to my doctor, I would say, actually, doctor, I understand that if you read the recommendation article that came out from the Canadian Task Force, you'll see that I'm supposed to have a conversation with you And if I decide I still want a mammogram, you're supposed to give me a requisition. Uh, And then if a woman doesn't have the confidence to have that kind of conversation with her doctor, there are scripts, there are suggestions of how to have that conversation on two websites that I'll direct you to. One of them is densebreastscanada.ca and another one is mybreastscreening.ca. That's very helpful. That's very helpful to have that script there for people. Uh, also in the, the U.S., though, they uh, discouraged breast self-exams, which we've been hearing for years. So Yes. No, the, the, both the Canadians and the Americans discourage breast self-exams, and they even discourage doctors from doing breast exams as part of a routine physical. And that's because the way they come to their guidelines and what research they're willing to look at. But in Canada, most women are only having mammograms every two years. And most women with dense breasts are not um, getting supplemental screening. So doing breast exams is the way that many women are going to find their cancers. It currently is the way that many women find them. And lots of times I call it accidental breast self-examination. A woman who, she hasn't intended to examine her breast, but she notices a lump in the shower, for example. It's when a woman finds a lump, either intentionally or unintentionally. The term breast self-exam has gone out of favor and what they're starting to say or have been saying is women should be breast aware. And if she notices a change, she should go have her doctor look at it. But there's so much variability in what normal is among women. Some women's breasts are soft and uniform. Other women's breasts are firm. And many women's breasts are just lumpy. They feel little lumps everywhere. Well, if a woman doesn't know what her normal is, she's not likely to notice a change. So I'm very uh, much uh, in favor of women doing breast self-examination. And they don't have to do it religiously every month like like we used to be 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 told, even if they do it periodically, but do it deliberately. And you just might find a lump that isn't going to be seen on your mammogram or even if it's going to be seen, it might not be seen for many more months from whenever you do that breast exam. So in British Columbia, they have something called self-referral. Is this the ideal for the entire country? Yes, and for a couple of reasons. First of all, lots of women don't have a family doctor. So even if they want to go and ask for a requisition, there's no one to ask. We know millions of people across the country have no family doctor. So it's important that women be allowed to self-refer. But women need to know that they can. Even in provinces like mine, where women can self-refer, only 25% of eligible women in their 40s are having mammograms. So I'm so grateful to you for having this conversation so women will learn um, that either they can already or they should ask 
for our requisition. All right, incredible. Well, you're always sharing great information. Uh, so if people wanna know more, uh, find that script. Can you share those websites again, please? Sure, densebreastscanada.ca or mybreastscreening.ca. Okay, wonderful. I'm gonna put those in the liner notes uh, when this goes live on podcast so people can find it there as well and click through. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Gordon. This was very enlightening. Thanks, Candace. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. In a world where businesses are increasingly digital, my next guest has chosen a different path. She's Petty Light, the adventurous soul behind Grit and Grace, a boutique with brick and mortar stores in Toronto, Guelph and Sobble Beach. Despite the online shopping trend, she's standing strong with her physical stores, creating a space for women to embrace their individuality and find their confidence. Let's explore her unique approach to business. Welcome to What She Said, Penny. Hi, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So why did you decide to open physical stores for Grit and Grace when the world seems to be shifting towards online retail? Uh, Yeah, so I was living abroad in Costa Rica for six years, back and forth for 10 in total. And I had come back uh, and repatriated back into Canada during the pandemic and had gone shopping and was very disappointed in the retail landscape for Women my age at the time, I was 45, 44, now I'm 48, um, and was also struggling to reconnect with a tribe of women here. So I wanted to create a space to not only shop and find clothing that was youthful and self-expressive for women my age, but also connect with like-minded women. So what unique experiences do you offer in your physical stores then that can't be replicated online? Um, so yeah, we host events actually. So we'll often do uh, wine, yoga, and shopping. We'll have book clubs in the stores. We have tarot card readers come in. Um, we've had we even had a beat poetry woman come. We have live music at the Sable Beach store. So we really created a, a space where people can come together, gather, connect, and enjoy whatever it is we're offering in that particular event. And how have the stores been received in the communities that you've set up in? So specifically Toronto, you have uh-huh. two locations. Well, you will soon have two locations, Guelph and then Sable Beach. Yeah, so Sable Beach, um, it was amazing. The community is wonderful in receiving us. It's a really fun space. Um, we have an entire outdoor extension that has a Volkswagen uh, Westphalia for photos and giant love letters and you know we can host the yoga outside there so it's been we've even had actually salsa dancing lessons there as well so that's been really fun and well received um, also in Guelph uh, I think again it's women really especially coming out of a pandemic world have wanted to connect um, and meet in person and, and I think a lot of people are really tired of being online truthfully yeah 
So we recorded a longer podcast, but just to give people listening to the radio segment here a, a little perspective, you have a, a history in in, corpor- in working in corporations, you PR, uh, but travel at yoga, mm-hmm. uh, you have a lot going on. How do you bring all of that into grit and grace? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, 18 years in corporate, um, while I didn't love my experience there, I certainly had a lot of learnings that I bring to the table now, especially from a marketing and branding perspective um, and how to deliver a true and meaningful customer experience. And then with my uh, yoga teacher training and my travel experience, I think the main binding thing there would be connection and, you know, that is and connection and community, which are the two most important pillars in my business with Great and Grace. But we, we, we would, I would be remiss if I didn't ask, tell me about the clothes because they are spectacular. I just want people to know this. I've been into one of your stores, so I just want people to know your clothes are great, but you can, you can share why they're so great. Thank you. Um, I think mostly I, you know, I choose quality and clothing that, gives women an opportunity to step a little bit out of their comfort zones or as much as they want out of their comfort zones and express who they are through their clothing. It's also very colorful. So when I came back from living in that very colorful Latin and African culture, um, I found that the clothing in Canada was a little bit gray and black and white. And so I wanted to infuse some color uh, into it. It's whimsical. It's boho chic. You know, we have some, you know, suiting, but the suiting even always has something, an element of fun, whether it's in the lining or the buttons or the color of it. So it's, I would say it's an opportunity to express yourself. I, I'm laughing a little bit as I think about all the black, white, and gray in my closet currently. <laughs> I, I feel seen. <laughs> so I'll, I'll have to do something about that. Climate doesn't help, so. <laughs> this is true. This is true. But it is always nice to see a nice bright color in the middle of winter, I will admit. Yeah. So, uh, so that is a great thing that you have going there. So just quickly then, what can people expect from you and Grit and Grace in the future, what's what's next? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're we have growth plans. We're opening a second store in Toronto this year in September at a new project called the Well. It's uh, one of Canada. It's actually Canada's largest construction project right now, owned by Rio Can. Um, it's a live, work, play sort of community. They call it a campus. So we're very excited to be a part of that. Uh, story year moving forward, and then I'm hoping to next year launch relaunch my adventure travel business and host retreats for the Grit and Grace guest. Yeah, well, I I have listeners in uh, two markets that you're not in, so Surrey and Ottawa. But I want to assure them they can still get your clothes online. Yes, absolutely. Right. But for everybody else listening across the entire country, and obviously in the markets you're at, where can they connect with you? So we have our online store is gritandgraceclothing.com. Instagram is at gritandgraceclothing. We have a store in Guelph, a store in Salvo Beach, and a store on Ossington in downtown Toronto. All right. Penny, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Joining me now for Saturday night at the movies is Anne Brody, and we've got a big one this week, so let's jump right in. What do we got first, Anne? 
The Eight Mountains. What an amazing film. It's set in the Italian Alps and it concerns two boys. One, a local, very, you know, poverty-stricken kid and a city kid who comes to the mountains with his parents every summer. So it follows them over 40 years. They're, they're tremendously simpatico. Um, and as children, they run around and explore the mountains. And it's the only life the one kid has ever known. And as a man, he decides he'll never leave the mountain. Um, and the other fellow just falls in love with, with the natural world. Well, they have a very good friendship. And it seems it's going to last forever. But of course, it doesn't. They're separated, an odd circumstance, they're separated for 15 years, and then suddenly they meet again um, and decide to build a stone cabin up in the highest of the mountains. Honest to God, the visuals are out of this world, just at Mont Blanc in the distance. I've been to the Italian Alps. Yeah, me too. So watching that trailer, I was just uh, taken right back. It is such a beautiful area. Yes, so much. So now the city guy's trying to make it there in the city. He's not succeeding. He's not feeling it. He's beginning to feel he needs to be in the mountains with the mountain man. So it follows them over 40 years, the ups and downs. And it's, you know, it's any friendship. It's female friendship, male friendship uh, at, at all times of life, a unifying force and really a beautiful transcendental study of an emotional state that we all share. So I would highly recommend that. And it's in theaters. All right, excellent. Uh, Master Gardener looked really intriguing to me. Yeah, again, nature-based. So Joel Edgerton plays um, a a horticulturalist who is in charge of this massive um, garden owned, a fourth generation garden owned by Sigourney Weaver's uh, Miss Haversham. And he is a transformed man. He's very philosophical. He's thoughtful, smart, extremely caring. He takes on her grandniece as a as an apprentice in the garden. But the thing is, there's a this underlying feeling of dread. Um, Weaver's character is very much the mistress of the house. She's sleeping with him. Plus, she lives in the big plantation. He lives in what was a former slave cabin. And we see about a third of the way through, he's looking at his tattoos in the mirror. They're all white power, uh, Nazi, um, very disturbing videos, uh, tattoos. So, you know, we wonder what the heck is going on here. So we learn a bit about his story. And the, the apprentice who shows up, Sigourney warns him right off the bat that she's of mixed blood. And we wonder, well, why would that matter? And then we find out. So it's about his transformation, but it's also about the the deep mystery and reward of gardening and how how humanity relies on gardening for life, really. So there's a lot going on in it. The second chapter is a bit more urban, but it follows his relationship with the apprentice. So now this is a Paul Schrader one. It's, it's tonally dark, um, but it's really quite interesting, I found. I think a lot of people won't like it because of the gardening element, but I mean, it's terrific. Yeah, it, the story looks fascinating for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to tell you, I really loved the trailer for What's Love Got to Do With It? Oh. Uh, I'm a sap for these happy movies. So Right, yes. Now, it really is a follower of Love Actually. So it concerns a girl who lives in a house next to an Indian family. 
she and the young man have been friends since they were children. So her mother, played by Emma Thompson, is constantly pushing her to get married and constantly trying to find her people on Tinder. The guy next door tells her, and he's a modern man, but he tells her that he's consented to an arranged marriage because it's just simpler. So the day of the wedding, he meets the bride who's come from Pakistan and she looks so unhappy. So <laughs> um, we see him confiding in the original girl and things take an interesting course. And I'm not going to give anything away, but it, it's the joyous wedding, um, sort of, you know, blasting all the fears out of the water for the married couple and then the, the reality. But it's funny and it's light. And it's produced by Jemima Khan, who's a British um, aristocrat. She was married to the uh, former prime minister of Pakistan. And she's always been an influencer in terms of style and lifestyle and fashion and food. So it's it's an eyeful. It's really fun. Yeah, it looks it looks super fun. So I, I am looking forward to that. Uh, tell me about the last one we'll have here today is Wanda Sykes. She's very funny, you know. She's she sarcastic as can be. So I was shocked when her series, her special, I'm an Entertainer on Netflix showed a softer side of her. She was talking a lot about the experience of taking communion and making it funny, but still letting us know it's important to her. And then she talks about her COVID experience and she had it and she was isolating, which meant that her wife and her kids couldn't bother her and she prayed to have long COVID because so she, she found her happy place. <laughs> and the, oh God, there's this one moment where she imitates Mitch McConnell and she uses her mic cords to great effect. The whole, that is worth watching everything. But it's a gentle humor and a relatable humor and I just think she's fun. So it's a spirit lifter. All right, wonderful. And where is that playing? That is on Netflix. Fantastic. Okay, so you've got these and a whole lot more. I mean, you really have a whole lot more yes. over on what she said talk this week. So people need to go check that out. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, Anne. We'll see you, Candace. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. She broke a thousand heirlooms I was never meant to keep. She filled my life with color, canceled plans and trashed my car. But none of that was ever who we are. Boundaries when it comes to teenagers are difficult, mostly because they're always stepping over them. Or <laughs> perhaps we're a little muddy on what a boundary is and how to be clear on them. Thankfully, Allie Payne, our expert on the parent-teen relationship, is here to help. Welcome back to the show, Allie. Oh, thanks so much, Candice. So can you explain the difference for me then between a boundary and maybe an expectation Yes, and this is a fantastic distinction and one that unfortunately, of course, parents are not taught. So we get stuck in the mud in here. An expectation is a projection of how I want to feel. So I'm requiring my teenager to do, be, say certain things so that I can have the experience I want. I am not taking ownership of it 
I need them to manage my emotional experience. A boundary comes from a position of ownership. I own, this is how I want to feel. And then I, from a place of respect for myself and respect for someone else, for my teen, I set a boundary that requires me to make most of the first moves because I am owning. Whereas the expectation to go back is about your teenager needing to comply, there's monitoring, um, whereas a, a boundary comes from respect and, and often has trust involved, even if your teenager doesn't get it right the first time. So an expectation then would be something like, you know, to clean up after you make a mess in the kitchen and a boundary would be something like, you know, you can't speak to me that way because it makes me feel. Awful. Well, an expectation would be either you get bees at school or you're grounded. That's an expectation because I want to feel like a good parent. Okay. You get That's you ridiculous. We that's performance based. An expectation is um, you will clean your room every Sunday because that's what I did when I was a child. That's okay. just the way it is. And a, whereas a boundary is, um, okay, your room is your safe, your sanctuary, your safe space, and this is my house. So we're not going to create any damage to my house because that's what you're going to pay for that. So my boundary is um, Sundays and Wednesdays, this is an example, okay, the, we are going to, uh, dinner isn't going to be served until um, all of the dishes, plates, foods, substance, whatever in your room are out of your room because... Uh, I won't ask you to do too many other things, but if there's damage to your room, then you will pay for that. So that's a boundary. All right. Well, let's talk about how to implement those boundaries then, because right. it's, <laughs> you know, it's all nice and well, we're sitting here chatting about it, but we all know that putting it into action is much more difficult. So um, I, I mean, I said, please, why are they not doing right that? yes yeah like i asked a million i'm asking nicely i'm asking nicely and i hear that from parents and i think that's wonderful it's a wonderful first step to ask nicely um what i use in my in my proven framework is a the way the brain processes information is that asking nicely is actually not a complete request it's not specific on what exactly do you want done does your teenager know what done even looks like which is a Brené Brown uh, um, tool and then is it time bound because I have so many parents who will like finish dinner and then say okay you're on dishes will you wash the dishes please and the teen says yes by the way I did this and I would say yes and they'd say are you gonna do it now how about now how about now no, because my parents never put it time bound, by eight o'clock, I would just not do the dishes because I knew it would eat them alive. And guess what? They would come wash the dishes. So I never had to wash the dishes. Now I got labeled as lazy. Have you been talking to my daughter? Yes, but, they, <laughs> <laughs> but because it wasn't time bound. So the asking nicely is one thing, which is a great start. I just can't say that enough. It's a great start. But unless the, a request is done effectively, it's still not a boundary. A request is a simple request. Now it's the beginning of a boundary, but if you notice you're saying something over and over again, that is not a boundary, that is begging. And it goes back to an expectation is, I want you to be the way I need you to be so I can feel respected, but because I don't know how to do that effectively, I'm just gonna get mad at you for not doing it. So from the request, in order to move to a boundary, 
we have to say, like, again, is the request, which it does start with that, is it very specific, task specific? Is it time bound? Is it negotiated with your team? Because maybe they have a lot of homework that night and maybe it's going to work to do it at a, at a different time. You have to, they are individual human beings. We do need to, because a, a command is not a boundary either. That, that doesn't work. Then to move it to a boundary, then we have to say, this, this is necessary for us to get done. And for, is this because you want your team to just do it or is because this is about respect? So a, so a boundary is I need to love and respect myself first. So I'm feeling a bit taken advantage of that, that, that irritating kind of resentment is usually a signal that there's a boundary missing there. Okay, so how, what do I need to happen so I feel more respected? Now, how can I ask my teenager to, to take on this task in a way that's also respectful of them? So that means hearing them. Then we come to a relative agreement, but it is not a collaboration, it is a conversation. Let me be very clear, you are still the parent. Um, and then if it's, not, uh, bound, if it's not done, yes, there might need to be a consequence, but if you go to consequence first, you're right back to control. So um, it's understanding that difference between request, expectation, and boundary. And it's one of the biggest conversations I have with parents. I, I actually know it is because I've had that conversation with you privately myself. <laughs> Help me, Hallie. So I know this from experience and I hope people um, actually do follow up with you because we just don't have enough time to cover all of this in our interviews um, every month. But this one in particular, I think you're probably going to hear from people. So where can they find you? Uh, you have a masterclass that runs that covers these kinds of things as well. So can you share all of that? Sure, you can find me on TikTok and Instagram at Ali Payne. If you click the link in my bio, you'll find the link to that free masterclass or my website, AliPayne.com. There's a banner right at the top and you can get the free training now. All right, incredible. Ali, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. that there is a shortage of PSWs and RPNs in long-term care in home and community care facilities. Thankfully, there is some progress being made on this front thanks to WeRPN, the Registered Practical Nurses Association of Canada, the Government of Ontario, and the BEGIN program. Joining me to share more is Diane Martin, Chief Executive Officer at WeRPM. Welcome back, Diane. So nice to be here. Always nice to see you, Candice. So congratulations. Uh, this is huge. You have already over a thousand participants enrolled in this program. So can you tell us more about the program's mission and how it aims to address the urgent, very urgent staffing needs in Ontario's long-term care and home and community care sectors? Yes. Yeah, so anytime that there is a nursing shortage, the hardest hit areas always are long-term care and home and community care. 
for many decades, certainly I've been a nurse for 44 years, and it's always been perceived as being more desirable to work in the acute care system in a hospital for nurses. And um, once nurses get into the other sectors, they realize the incredible rewards of working in those sectors. But attracting them there during a nursing shortage is very, very difficult. So this particular program was meant to both serve uh, people who are struggling, particularly women who are wanting to go back to school but might be single mothers or uh, financially challenged in some way, and help um, those people become, uh, have a, a career opportunity, but also at the same time, introducing them to the gifts that are in long-term care and home and community care in terms of uh, the joy that happens in the interface with those particular types of patients. So is this an opportunity for uh, people to to get their certificate in, in this, or is this also opportunity to uh, perhaps grow your skill set uh, if you're already a nurse? I think it's important to know that, I mean, this is a this is a historically female profession, and I do think there's a lot to unpack there. I think sometimes we don't uh, really see the opportunities or, or work really hard to lay out trajectories of career. And so with this program, we are making it much more clear. If you're a PSW, you can become an RPN. And for many PSWs, that is their dream. If you're an RPN and and accomplished and really are ready to move on and would like to be an RN, it gives them an opportunity as well. And it equalizes the playing field a little bit because of the financial assistance. Um, We have up to $10,000 a year for uh, tuition reimbursement for people. And then for those who demonstrate the most financial need, they may also be able to receive $5,000 additional per year to help them with their uh, uh, their costs at home. And I just really feel like um, this is uh, one of those programs that uh, really um, increases opportunities for people that wouldn't normally have it. I know I was a single mom um, when I was seeking out some of my um, continue, my further education. I remember one day looking at some credit card bills and thinking, do, do you come out from this? Like, do you re- recover from a situation like this? And you do. But um, that level of worry on top of what I was trying to take on for education was um, really difficult. And so we're hoping to alleviate some of that concern for people. I love it. Do you have any success stories you can share? Oh, I've got a couple of quotes, actually. This is one of my favorites right here. um, A student told us, having these programs readily available to you allows you to keep dreaming without having to worry about how you're going to pay your mortgage, how you're going to pay your tuition, how you're going to keep going. Another nurse told us, I'm a single mother, so so finances are for home not schooling. Now being part of Begin, I have financial freedom. It's it's been um, able to keep me going in nursing as a whole. It's been a huge help. And um, I just personally relate and uh, really love this program for those reasons. So tell me then, how many people do you expect to be enrolled in the Begin program this year and going forward? Well, we've just passed the thousand mark. We're um, really pleased about that. It, 
it's important that we also recognize that those thousand nurses doing a return of service in long-term care and home care are going to make a difference in the lives of our most vulnerable people. So we have to note that right up front. Um, but what we're, we're really hoping is by the end of the program in 2026, that we've enrolled and supported 4,000 people uh, to further their nursing careers. I love this. You are you're doing so much on so many fronts here. You know, uh, I, this is just a really good feel good story. So thank you so much for joining me today to share it. I'm sure people are listening and want to know how they can perhaps get involved themselves. So where is the best place for them to go? So um, people who are interested in the program can go to WeRPN's website www.wearpn. Um, my kids tell me you don't need the W's anymore. Uh, <laughs> .com. And um, you can also call the office. And it's important to know that as you go through this process, you have to do the hard work of getting enrolled yourself in the programs. But after that, you are assigned a case manager who helps you. You are uh, you can access tutoring. You can access uh, classes on how to get a job. And if you go to the website, we can tell you all the details of how you get started. All right. Thank you so much. I'm going to make sure that those links are uh, in the podcast liner notes when it goes live on podcast next week. Thank you so much for joining me again, Diane. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Look straight ahead, nothing but blue. I love bringing the most compelling voices in Canadian literature to you, and today is no exception. You might know my next guest from her Stephen Leacock medal-nominated book, We're All in This Together, which was adapted into a feature film in 2021. Today, though, we're diving into Amy Jones' newest novel, Pebble and Dove, a captivating story set in a once-famous, now-abandoned aquarium ship in Florida and centered around the complex relationships between three generations of women and their shared connection with a manatee named Pebble. Welcome to What She Said, Amy. Thank you so much for having me, Candace. I love writers. How on earth did you come up with this story? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, like most of my stories, um, I feel like the genesis of them gets kind of lost along the way because they change so much. But very from the very beginning, I knew I wanted to uh, write about a manatee in captivity. Um, I spent a lot of time in Florida. My parents are snowbirds um, and my grandparents were snowbirds. So um, I've been going to Florida a lot since I was a kid and uh, manatees are, are pretty ubiquitous there. Um, and we used to visit this manatee uh, in just outside of Sarasota named Snooty, who was at the time the oldest living manatee in captivity. And I was really just sort of um, like mesmerized by his story. And unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. But um, ever since then, I was sort of thinking about, you know, the idea of animals in captivity and uh, the complexities of our relationship with uh, animals, especially marine mammals, because, you know, I grew up near the ocean, I spent a lot of time near the ocean, and I really love it. So it was another thing that I wanted to write about. So I knew from the very beginning that those were some of the things that I wanted to bring into the book. Um, as well, I just I really 
Um, I'm really fascinated and I always love diving into uh, relationships between uh, families, especially women in families. So, um, you know, even though it may not seem like uh, there's like a natural connection between the two, it it actually came quite easily once I decided to bring the two together. Well, let's talk about those um, relationships uh, for a minute, not the marine mammal relationships, <laughs> but the uh, you talk about mothers and daughters a lot. So how did your own experience shape these character dynamics? Um, you know, I grew up with, uh, you know, a very uh, strong mother and strong grandmother who I was very close to. Um, and, you know, at the same time, even though, um, you know, we were very close, there's there is so much complexity to those relationships, especially throughout the generations and, you know, sort of watching um you know, even my friends and their parents um, and the way that their relationships change and grow as they get older and have they, they have children of their own. So, you know, I'm really interested in, you know, thinking about um, the ways that those relationships change and also, um, you know, the different uh, the different types of relationships that mothers and daughters can have. I mean, in the book, um, the one of the protagonists, uh, Lauren, she is the She's the mother of Dove, but she's also the daughter of Imogen. And she and Imogen have a very difficult relationship because Imogen is an artist. And very early on, um, after she had Lauren, she sort of, um, you know, instead of sacrificing her career to be a mother, she sort of went the other direction. And so, um, you know, I really wanted to dive into that idea of how being an artist and, you know, having a career as a woman can also, um, you know, change your relationship with uh, with your family members, with your with your daughters or your parents. Speaking of, of careers, you say that you were a late bloomer in your in your writing career. So can you tell me more about your journey into writing and how it shaped your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I started in theater, <laughs> and uh, I very quickly realized um, after I did a theater degree that it wasn't quite the life for me. I I'm not much of a collaborator. I like to be in charge of of, uh, of my own um, of my own work, <laughs> not without any other input. So writing uh, writing was something that I had always done, but I never really considered it um, as a career until you know I was in my 30s, and then I. Um, I decided to go back to school and do a creative writing degree. And I wrote my first book, which was a collection of short stories that got published that that I wrote during my MFA. And then, um, you know, and this is, I think, a very common story among writers uh, that, you know, that book came out. I thought, oh, I'm set forever. (laughs) Um, And of course, then it took another seven years before my first novel came out. And, uh, you know, by that time, you know, it had been almost, I think, 10 years since I had started writing. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 like I said, it's, it is a common story for a lot of writers. But the thing that I love about writing is that it's something that you can do. There's no, there's no age cutoff for it. So a lot of times, you know, I, I do a lot of teaching, and I have a lot of students who will come to me and say, you know, it's too late, I can't start writing now. And, and that's not true. I, I feel like the more experience you have, in some ways, the, you know, you bring a different perspective to the work that you do. So I'm always trying to encourage people, you know, if it's something that they're interested in doing and they have a love of it, that they should just go for it because it's it's one of those things that doesn't, it's not like being an Olympic gymnast where, you know, you have an age cut off um, and you can't do it after a certain age. I guarantee you that what you just said has inspired somebody to start writing. Oh, I really so hope so. <laughs> I hope, I, I love that people share these stories because, you know, sometimes it's just that little nudge we need to go on to that next 
chapter in our lives. So I love that you shared that. Thank you so much. And I, I just want to ask you quickly, just what's next after Pebble and Dove? Are you already working on a new project? I sure am. Um, you know, I really like to keep the momentum going. Um, you know, every new book that you start is always going to be hard. Facing the blank page feels like you're learning to write a novel all over again. Um, but you know, there is this period of time between the time you finish writing a book and the time it gets published. There's usually, you know, could be anywhere from six months to a year while things are sort of getting ready to be published. So um, during that time, I always like to start something new. So I am working on a new novel right now. Um, this one is uh, is not about manatees, um, but it is about, it is about, does have strong women characters, which is something that I think I will always go back to writing about. Perfect, perfect, perfect for what she said. Uh, I want people to be able to find the book and connect with you, obviously, Amy. So where can they do that? Um, you can find the book at uh, any bookstore after May 30th. Uh, you know, you can also pre-order it uh, from any of your local indie bookstores up until May 30th. Um, you can find me. Uh, uh, my website is amyjonesauthor.com. Um, I'm also pretty active on Twitter at amylaurajones. Um, and you can also find me on Instagram and Facebook. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.